the president comes out and has a very short press conference. And he says, the policies at the University of Michigan Law School go too far. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much. Somehow that goes too far. And I'm thinking, how much fewer of us should there be where it's just right? It's hard not to take that very personally. In 1978, the Supreme Court ruled that colleges could take race into account when crafting their incoming classes. The court concluded, somewhat ambiguously, that race may be considered in granting admission, so long as there is not a rigid quota system. So throughout the 80s and 90s, that's where the law stood. To get a diverse class, universities could use race as one factor of many. So you can't just use race any old way. You can't have a quota. You can't have a set-aside. This is University of Michigan law professor Michelle Adams. You can't have separate admissions committees for different races, right? You have to use race just as one factor among many, where everybody is competing against everybody else, non-racially coded, no set-asides. And if you do that, if you use race in just that way, then it would be narrowly tailored to achieve the appropriate compelling governmental interest. That last bit, narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest, often phrased as a compelling state interest, that's lawyer speak for using race just enough to get diversity. Just a little bit. Just a sprinkle. You can't use it a lot because it's inherently unconstitutional. Here's the problem. Some schools get a lot of applicants, tens of thousands of students applying for just a few thousand spots. How do you complete an individualized review of so many people? How do you make sure you weigh race consistently across those tens of thousands? Is there any way to streamline the process while still treating race with the care that Justice Lewis Powell said the Equal Protection Clause requires? I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law. Today, part two of a three-part series about the biggest affirmative action cases to be decided by the Supreme Court. After Justice Powell approved diversity as a constitutionally permissible goal in the 1978 Bakke case, selective schools across the country were free to take race into account as they admitted their incoming classes. But depending on how many applicants they had to get through, schools had to create systems to do this. Which brings us to my alma mater. University of Michigan, where I'm sitting right now. About 20 years after Bakke, the University of Michigan was the subject of multiple lawsuits about its own admissions policies. Uh, you had an undergrad and you had a law school plan, both affirmative action plans, but using race a little bit differently. The Michigan Law School plan was very similar to the Harvard plan that Justice Powell liked in Bakke. The undergrad, which got many, many, many thousands more applications, basically used race in more of a mechanical way. It basically was a bonus point scheme. Okay, let's break this down. I'm here with Greg Storr. I'm Greg Storr. I'm the Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg News. I've been covering the court since 1998. And you are going to help me walk through these affirmative action cases. Looking forward to it. So there were two cases before the court? There were. I think we should maybe talk about the Michigan Law School case first. Sound good? Sure. Sing to the colors. 
Barbara Gruder was an unsuccessful applicant to the University of Michigan Law School. Can you just tell the cameras your name? <laughs> Barbara Gruder, plaintiff in the law school case. Barbara, can we get you up closer to the mics? She wasn't admitted, and uh, she filed suit, saying that she did not get a fair chance to compete for uh, a spot at the University of Michigan. There are separate criteria used on the basis of race. The fact is, is that we do know that had the criteria used for minorities been applied to me, I absolutely would have gotten in. So how did the law school decide who gets in? Well, what we labored to do was to ensure that the admissions policy and practices were completely consistent with the Bakke decision. One pool of applicants. Race could be considered as one factor among many. Ted Shaw is a law professor at the University of North Carolina. Back in the 90s, he was at Michigan, one of just two black professors in the whole law school, in fact. And he served on the committee that reworked the law school's admissions policies to try to follow the guidance given in Bakke. We had a lot of debate about the place of standardized test scores. Where we came out is that test scores tell us something. They don't tell us everything. There were students who came from backgrounds that were unprivileged, who may not have had high test scores, but indicated in other ways that they were capable of doing the work. They were strivers, as they've been called, from all kinds of backgrounds. We gave a lot of thought to those kinds of issues and more. The problem, as Barbara Gruder saw it, was you had a system where certain grades and test scores would get you admitted if you were one of the underrepresented students. But if you were white, those same grades and test scores weren't enough. Terry Pell is the president of the Center for Individual Rights, which represented Gruder. What we found was there were these very sharp drop-offs where the acceptance rate for some combination of grades and test scores at a certain point would be very high. And then at one index point below that, the admissions rate would be almost zero. University of Michigan administrators believed that their law school admissions policy was a nuanced and holistic review that was permissible under Bakke. But when Pell's team ran the numbers, they found that race seemed not just like a plus factor, but the deciding factor. For example, an African-American student with an undergraduate GPA of 3.75 would usually get admitted if they had a 161 on their LSATs. But a white student with the same GPA would need at least a 167 to have a real shot. Michigan's admissions policies were not public knowledge. In fact, most schools didn't make their specific practices known. Justice Lewis Powell and Bakke endorsed the use of race as a plus factor. But was it just a plus factor? Bloomberg's Greg Store. Exactly how many schools used it, how much they used it, that was a little bit fuzzy because universities, for the most part, didn't want to talk about exactly what they were doing. Why didn't universities want to talk about what they were doing? Well, in part because it's uncomfortable, in part because, you know, they were putting a pretty heavy thumb on the scale uh, in some cases, and it could make people on both sides uncomfortable. It could make people who are beneficiaries of affirmative action uncomfortable seeing how, how much of a thumb was on the scale. And it could anger people on the other side. So it was easier just not to talk about it. 
And part of the reason Michigan became a flashpoint was that its admissions practices became public knowledge. Through a series of Freedom of Information Act requests, longtime Michigan philosophy professor Carl Cohen got access to the admission statistics, and he expressed shock over what he found. There's a little line up at the top of the form that says, use the top line for majority students, use the middle and bottom line for minority students. I mean, it was shocking. Here he is on 60 Minutes discussing that undergraduate admissions policy with Ed Bradley. For the white students who get the top line, it's reject. And for the black students or the Hispanic students who get the bottom line, it's admit. So in cell after cell, it's reject, admit, reject, and admit, reject, and admit. Cell after cell after cell. To get accepted into the University of Michigan's undergraduate college in the late 90s, you needed to get 100 points on their 150-point admission scale. They had a point system uh, that they used for every applicant. Again, Bloomberg's Greg Store. You get a certain number of points if you have an SAT score above whatever. You get a certain number of points based on your GPA. You get a certain number of points based on your extracurricular activities. You know, the standard things that colleges look at. How tough your high school classes were, if you took on any leadership roles, that sort of thing. The best chance to get points was your GPA. Each grade point was worth 20 points toward admission. So if you had a 3.5 GPA, you'd already have 70 points toward the 100 needed to get in. And you can get a certain number of points for being a member of a particular race. How much did race count in the admissions process? Well, an outstanding college admissions essay would get you one point. Going from 1,000 to a perfect 1,600 on your SATs would get you two points. Being Black, Latino, or Native American got you 20 points, equivalent to a full extra point on your GPA. I'm Jennifer Gratz. Um, I'm one of the plaintiffs in the undergraduate case. And Jennifer Gratz said, because I'm white and because I didn't get those points, that is unconstitutional. I am being discriminated against. Why do you think what happened to you was wrong? I think that racial discrimination is wrong, and I think that the University of Michigan is using a preference that is based solely on skin color, and that is wrong. I will be uh, maybe more candid than I ought to be in telling you that I always thought that that was a vulnerable admissions program in the way it was designed. Again, former Michigan law professor Ted Shaw talking about the undergraduate policy. It fell afoul, I thought, of Baki, and I thought that it was very likely that they would lose, uh, almost certainty. But I knew that institutions that had that many applicants searched for easy ways of dividing the applicant pool up in a manner that would allow them to make decisions that were more manageable. And that was certainly true in the end. I mean, the number of undergraduate applications was huge, and that was an easy way to do it. You know, you've got just so many applications, and you want to try to be consistent. Marvin Krizlov is president of Pace University in New York. From 1998 to 2007, 
He was vice president general counsel at the University of Michigan. As I understood, it was an effort to try to triage a large number of applications. We felt that what we were doing was not just for the University of Michigan. Obviously, the University of Michigan was first and foremost my client, but we were carrying higher education and the commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion on our backs. And there were a lot of people who were supporting us through amicus briefs and so forth. And we really wanted to have an answer. And there were other universities, I can't name them for you, but who came up to me and said, you know, it's really important for us to know if we're going to be able to do this under what terms and conditions we can do it. And so we considered having a review of two different systems that really sort of represented, in many ways, all the options, that that was a helpful service for higher education. The undergraduate college and the law school approached admissions in very different ways. And having them both being stress-tested in court offered a chance for the Supreme Court justices to either say, yeah, you can use race like this, or... No, the way you're using race is just too mechanical. My feeling was uh, the law school policy was, I believed in and I thought was constitutional. Former University of Michigan president, Lee Bollinger. The undergraduate policy, I thought, was um, what you get when you have a very large admissions process and you're trying to streamline it and make it effective. It wasn't the policy I wanted, um, but it did seem to me to offer a choice. One is very clear about how we take it into account. You get a number of points. The other one was in that realm of, we think about lots of things, and, and these are the values we're trying to push. My feeling was, I didn't want to settle the cases. I wanted to fight for affirmative action as far as it would take, including to the Supreme Court. One of the reasons that Michigan was using these systems was to achieve what school administrators called critical mass. Here's Ted Shaw. The reality of the fact that if you are the only one or one of two or three black people in a classroom, what your experience is likely to be is going to be impacted by that. You know, you get this feeling like all eyes are on you. Like, what is the black girl going to say? Agnes Aliobwa is a grade school principal in Cleveland. But as this case was being argued at the Supreme Court, she was a student at the University of Michigan. And she told me what it was like for her when you didn't have critical mass. How can I express myself in a way where I won't be stereotyped and I'll be heard, right? Trying to make a point without being the aggressive or angry Black woman. And how can I articulate this, but also not feel like I'm the spokesperson for the diaspora and and speaking for all Black people and just trying to contribute my specific story. And I was just feeling that tension of speak or don't speak. That's definitely something that is real that I remember feeling as a college student. Like you feel you should speak, like you're the only one in the class who could represent it? Yeah, it's unsaid pressure to not let something go unchecked or you're the person who can speak to this so you should speak to this, but then also feeling like my experience shouldn't speak for all Black people, right? 
It sounds a little tiring. Exhausting, definitely. But critical mass is where it gets tricky. In order to have a critical mass of minority students, wouldn't you have to define how many students that would be? And, and that means putting a number on it. And once you're into numbers, isn't that a quota? Remember, Baki found that quotas are impermissible. No quotas. Can't have quotas. Well, that means that any numbers are more likely than not the third rail. So the University of Michigan aimed for a critical mass of minorities, but without defining that too specifically. If Michigan defined a precise number of black students they wanted in their class? It'd be the kiss of death. When we return, is Michigan Law's affirmative action program constitutionally permissible? What about its undergraduate point system? And perhaps more importantly for the future of affirmative action and admissions, is diversity still a compelling state interest? Stick around. Stay ahead of what's happening now to plot the career you want next. Set up news alerts for the stories you want to follow and use expert analysis for a greater understanding of the legal landscape. Your future begins now. Start smart with Bloomberg Law. President Bush weighed in today on another deeply divisive issue in this country, affirmative action. The issue is going to the United States Supreme Court. 25 years after Baki, the Supreme Court would again consider whether and how colleges could use race in admissions. But this time, the United States administration did not support what universities were doing. Republican President George W. Bush was siding with the Center for Individual Rights, with Terry Pell, and with the students who filed the suit. I strongly support diversity of all kinds, including racial diversity, in higher education. But the method used by the University of Michigan to achieve this important goal is fundamentally flawed. At their core, the Michigan policies amount to a quota system that unfairly rewards or penalizes prospective students based solely on their race. The president comes out and has a very short press conference. Diego Bernal is a Texas state representative from San Antonio. At the time of the affirmative action cases, he was a student at the University of Michigan Law School and chair of the Latino Law Students Association. And he says, the policies at the University of Michigan Law School go too far. The law school, some minority students are admitted to meet percentage targets, while other applicants with higher grades and better scores are passed over. And I'm thinking, there's 37 of us out of 1140. How much fewer of us should there be where it's just right? Look, I, I have no problem with trying to get the system right, but there's something about that that I did at, at the time take very personally because I felt very isolated and someone else looked over at us and say, there's too many of them. That, I think, is the moment where I thought, all right, we need to push back or at least speak for ourselves at a certain point. 
Bernal had already been involved in the case as a student intervener during undergrad. Now, as a student at the law school, he helped work on an amicus brief filed with the court. We thought it was important that there was an explanation of how this played out in the real world, the effects it could have, um, that it wasn't just some sort of clinical, sanitized thing. It was real life, real people, real consequences. So tomorrow, my administration will file a brief with the court arguing that the University of Michigan's admissions policies are unconstitutional. Whether you acknowledge it or not, your presence on campus is the subject of the conversation. So what are we going to do except either run away or step in? At the U.S. Supreme Court today, one of the most important civil rights cases in a generation. Outside the court, a sign of the high stakes. More than 5,000 demonstrators pro-affirmative action. Inside, a spirited debate. Uh, we'll hear argument now at number 02241, Barbara Gutter versus Lee Bollinger. It was almost an entirely different court than the one that heard the Baki case. Only William Rehnquist and John Paul Stevens were still there. Seven of the sitting justices had been appointed by Republican presidents. But while the court may have changed, like the lawyer for Baki a generation earlier, attorney Kirk Kolbo took the absolute position that race must never be used in admissions. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Is that your position that it cannot be our view, one of many factors? Our view, Your Honor, is that race itself should not be a factor uh, among others in choosing students well, because of the you have some precedents out there that you have to come to grips with. Now, remember, 25 years earlier, Justice Powell had said that schools could pursue diversity. He acknowledged that the Equal Protection Clause was adopted primarily to protect African Americans, but still he emphasized that it protects all persons. And diversity, he said, was a compelling state interest. But again, it was only Justice Powell who said that. The rest of the justices were split evenly on whether schools could use racial quotas, and neither side had mentioned diversity. There weren't a majority of justices who had said that diversity was a compelling interest that universities could pursue. This is Christina Rodriguez. At the time of the Grutter case, she was a clerk for Justice O'Connor. Now she's a professor of constitutional law at Yale Law School. I think that everyone at the time of Grutter understood what was at stake, that it was the opportunity for the court to make clear that diversity was a compelling interest. And a lot of the briefing, a lot of the argument was around that very question. Because if the court, once and for all, found that diversity was a compelling state interest, that would take what Justice Powell said in Baki a step further. It would essentially confirm that universities had the green light to take race into account when they craft their incoming classes. Very quickly into this argument about college and diversity and how best to educate the nation's students, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg took an unexpected angle in regard to the diversity argument. Mr. Colville, may I call your attention in that regard to the brief that was filed on behalf of some retired military officers who said that to have an officer corps that includes minority members in any numbers, there is no way to do it other than to give not an overriding preference, but a plus for race. 
the parties had focused their briefs on affirmative action's impact on education. But Ginsburg wanted to talk about the concern of the military, that they need to consider race in their military academies in order to ensure a diverse officer corps. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe we have an adequate record in this case from which to conclude that we wouldn't have representation of minorities in the military in the absence of... How is that were true? So let's take that as the fact. Would you still say, nonetheless, even if it's true, that there will be very few, if any, minority members admitted to the military academies, still you cannot use race? The argument is the military, similar to a national school like the University of Michigan, has found it imperative to consider race in recruitment, particularly for the leadership. Again, Michigan's former general counsel, Marvin Krizlov. They have these preparatory schools, and that goes to the pipeline of qualified students. The military relies on having a fully integrated officer corps for national security. What is your answer to the argument made in that brief that there simply is no other way to have armed forces in which minorities will be represented not only largely among the enlisted members, but also among the officer cadre? That brief Justice Ginsburg is talking about wasn't an official military statement. It was the result of years of work by Krisloff and his team to get retired military officers to speak to the importance of race to national defense. The question is whether without the the weighting of race that they do in fact give, Justice David Souter, they can have an adequate number of minorities in the academies to furnish ultimately a reasonable number of minorities in the officer corps. That's the issue, isn't it? Well, Your Your Honor, again, the, the terms you've used, reasonable and adequate, We have no information in this record on which I can make More than what would happen if they did nothing. Were you in the courtroom? I was in the courtroom, yes. What did you think when the justices almost immediately started talking about this military brief, which you spent so much time coordinating? My heart was going pitter-patter with excitement because I thought, boy, this really made a difference. We knew this was big. We knew this was big. I remember the day Joe Reeder, who was the attorney for Greenberg Traurig and had been Secretary of the Army, and he has a, an Alabama accent. He said, Marvin, today Norman Schwarzkopf has signed on to the military amicus brief. You know, to have this group of people telling the Supreme Court that a policy that would eliminate any consideration could imperil national security. That was very, very powerful. These were not the educational community. This was not, you know, the obvious suspects when it came to this talking about the importance of Baki. These were people who don't usually appear in front of the Supreme Court, period. The military brief was, I I, I almost would say, shocking because it was so different and unexpected and from an unexpected source. And then the justices came to critical mass. Critical mass. So-called critical mass. Okay, what is critical mass? Which is just a synonym for a number. Has anyone at Michigan ever defined critical mass? 
Michigan didn't like to quantify exactly what critical mass meant. But the district court in this case had found that over the years at the law school, it meant that somewhere between 10 and 17 percent of the incoming class would consist of underrepresented minority students. Here's Bloomberg's Greg Store. When you start talking about 12 to 14 percent or some actual number, uh, some people would say that really sounds like a quota to me. This exchange between university attorney Maureen Mahoney and Justice Antonin Scalia demonstrates some of the challenges of devising a system that addresses diversity but doesn't run afoul of Baki. The law school has attempted to take race into account in a very modest, limited fashion, no more than necessary to achieve the goal of trying to have sufficient numbers of minorities that there can be an excellent educational experience for everyone. But, but without a quota, just sufficient numbers, but that's not a quota. Your Honor, it is not a quota. When you say and sufficient numbers, you, I mean, that suggests to me that there, there is some minimum. Now, you don't name it, but there has to be some minimum. But you say there isn't a minimum. Your Honor, there's not a minimum. There well, is. Then you it have is. to eliminate the words. I asked O'Connor's former clerk, Professor Rodriguez, why a quota is treated like a dirty word. The reason why quotas are anathema under civil rights law is because they make these judgments about racial groups and their representation too crude for most people in the political process. And then they reduce admissions or representation to demographic characteristics. And there is a real aversion in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence under the Equal Protection Clause to engage in what it has referred to as racial balancing, the idea that you have to have a school population or a workplace that exactly mirrors the demographic composition of the society, because that suggests that people are representatives of their groups as opposed to individuals who share group characteristics. Is 2% a critical mass, Ms. Mahoney? I don't think so, Your Honor. Uh, 4%? Uh, no, Your Honor. What you have to pick some number, don't well, you? Well, actually, what like the... 8 is 8%? Your Honor, the... Now, does it stop being a quota because it's somewhere between 8 and, and 12, but it is a quota if it's 10? I, I, I don't understand that reasoning. Once Your you Honor... use the term critical mass, and, and you're, you're, you're into quota land. And the view that what a holistic review process does is ultimately create a quasi-quota or de facto quota is part of what animates the opposition to it. There's this belief that you're just hiding what many people agree is impermissible beneath this veneer of supposed individualized judgment, when in reality, as the search for underrepresented groups suggests, you're looking for racial balancing so that your institutions mirror society. Your Honor, what a quota is under this court's cases is a fixed number, and there is no fixed number here. As long as you say between 8 and 12, you're okay, is that it? If you said 10, it's bad, but between 8 and 12 is okay because it's not a fixed number. No. Would you think the Constitution? No, Your Honor. If it were a fixed range that said that it will be a minimum of 8 percent, come hell or high water, no matter what the qualifications of these applicants look like, no matter what it is that the majority applicants could contribute to the benefits of diversity, then certainly that would be a quota. But, but that is not what occurred here. Students learn a tremendous amount from each other. Their education is much more than the classroom. It's in the dorm. It's in the dining halls. It's in the coffee houses. At the argument for the undergraduate admissions policy, later that same day at the court, 
University Attorney John Payton, who would go on to become president of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, tried to explain to the court why, without a critical mass, the university wouldn't be able to achieve the true benefits of a diverse campus. If you have the meaningful numbers of minority students, what then happens is that students will see a range of ideas, a range of viewpoints from and among those students, and they will then see things that they may not have expected, similarities and differences. And those, in turn, will have the result of undermining stereotypes. Uh, you know, and this happens for the minority students and the white students. But in this section of the argument, the justices seemed more focused on the stark mechanics of the undergraduate point system, specifically those 20 points you get for being a minority applicant. A minority student who works very, very hard, very proud of his athletics, he gets the same number of points as a minority person who doesn't have any athletics. That, to me, looks like an overt quote. If you're minimally qualified and you're one of the minority races that gets the 20 points, you're in. And now we give the black student 20 points. Does it meet the opinion of Justice Powell in Bakke when that was called for individualized consideration? Diego Bernal, the former Michigan law student who was so hurt by President Bush's words, told me he can't know for sure whether those 20 points got him into Michigan. But I suspect so. I suspect that those 20 points absolutely helped me get into the university. But those 20 points didn't do my homework for me. Those 20 points didn't stay up all night. Those 20 points didn't change my test scores after I got there. Those 20 points didn't graduate me. And those 20 points didn't get me into the University of Michigan School of Social Work, which was the number one ranked school of social work. And those 20 points aren't responsible for getting me into the law school and graduating law school and passing the bar and all those things, right? That's 20 points for opportunity, for the opportunity to go. But what you do with it after that is still up to you. The case is submitted. NBC News World Headquarters in New York. This is NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. Good evening. It is one of the hot-button issues of our time, and tonight the Supreme Court has spoken. They have ruled affirmative action is here to stay, at least for now, and at least in some form. The court appears to be saying a diverse society or student body is a good thing, even if quotas are not. In 1978, Justice Lewis Powell alone ruled that diversity was a compelling state interest. 25 years later, by a vote of 5 to 4, the Supreme Court adopted Powell's reasoning. Justice O'Connor read the decision of the court. The law school's race-based admissions program is also narrowly tailored to further the interest we approve today. The law school considers race only as a plus in a particular applicant's file and give serious consideration to all the ways besides race that an applicant might contribute to a diverse educational environment. The law school's pursuit of a critical mass of underrepresented minorities operates neither as a quota nor a two-track admissions system. Moreover, the law school engages in a highly individualized, holistic review of each applicant. Professor Rodriguez. 
people understood, litigants, clerks on the court, the justices, that what mattered was whether the court was going to decide that diversity once and for all was compelling because that is what would enable universities generally to take race into account and use affirmative action. But the undergraduate college and its point system? That went too far. And by a vote of six to three, was found unconstitutional. Here's Justice Rehnquist. We hold that the university's current policy, which distributes 20 points to every underrepresented minority applicant solely because of race, is not narrowly tailored to achieve respondents' asserted interest in diversity. In the Bakke case, Justice Powell emphasized the importance of considering each particular applicant as an individual. The current policy clearly fails to provide such individualized review. Respondents readily conceive that this automatic distribution makes race decisive for virtually every minimally qualified underrepresented minority applicant. At the end of the day, the outcome leaves a result many believe mirrors the so-called Bakke decision of 1978, in which the court said quotas were illegal, but race could still be a consideration. The split decision mirrored Bakke in regards to quotas, but it went further. For the first time, a majority of the court agreed that diversity was, in fact, a compelling interest, and it provided specific guidance on how to achieve that diversity without running afoul of the Constitution. But there was something new, something quite unusual. There, written into the Grutter opinion, was something that seemed akin to a sunset provision. And in many ways, it sets up our next episode. Justice O'Connor. Now, we are mindful that a core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to do away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. Accordingly, race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. We take the law school at its word that it would like nothing better than to find a race-neutral admissions formula and will terminate its race-conscious admissions program as soon as practicable. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interests that we approve today. Professor Rodriguez. I think she, in particular, was alive to the practicalities associated with affirmative action, but also the dangers of authorizing it without any sense of what might lead to us no longer relying on that. She found the diversity rationale compelling and believed that what the University of Michigan was doing was okay, at least for now. And it's not that that 25-year statement should be seen as a formal sunset provision, but more as an encouragement to think beyond these sorts of remedies and to think about how we create a world in which we don't have to rely on affirmative action and still produce diverse student bodies. Coming up on Uncommon Law. We're advocating for only one thing. Stop using race as an admissions factor. Why? Because race has no place in American life and law. After the presidency of Donald Trump and his three conservative appointees, a new Supreme Court is taking a skeptical look at affirmative action. 
We're in strict scrutiny. Compelling interest has to be established. We don't think that the compelling interest in diversity will ever expire. What if Grutter was grossly optimistic in what it thought was achievable? What if there's no end point? Will the court uphold decades of precedent? Or will they find that diversity is no longer a compelling state interest? Justice Powell made a choice. There's the reasons that have been countenanced by the court. And then there's everything else. That became the framework for decades after. That's really been unfortunate. Is affirmative action about to fall? That's next time on Uncommon Law. Uncommon Law is produced and hosted by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did all the mixing and sound design for this episode. My editor, Josh Block, is the executive producer of podcasts and videos here at Bloomberg Industry Group. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed this series, please rate us and leave us a review. It really helps. Special thanks to Bloomberg's Greg Store, whose book I relied on heavily. Seriously, if you want to know all the intricacies of the Michigan cases, get that book. It's called A Black and White Case. Our cover art is by Jonathan Hortarte. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor, and Cheska Antonelli. See you next time. The case is submitted. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits. Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.